baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley and Nick Green. Hello again and welcome to From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, joined as always by Nick Green for our weekly chat about the Braves and what's happening across the world of baseball. Been a very eventful week. Of course, we're happy to have all these games happening all the time after what felt like a winter of not a lot going on for the Braves. We've got our baseball back and now a whole lot of things are starting to happen both on and off the field. So we're going to get into a lot of that on this show. Nick, it's been a couple of weeks of watching this team and I guess as we dive into this thing, what have you thought thus far of what you're seeing from this Braves club and where they're going from here is this is going to be, I think we've figured it out pretty quick just based on the Philly series and the Mets series. It's going to be a pretty competitive National League East, I'd say. It's going to be a real competitive National League East. And when you look at the, the Mets uh, and what they've done the last two days, their offense looks good. Uh, they're starting pitching, obviously, if they stay healthy. They're some of the best pitchers in the league. And then their bullpen is is outstanding. Even though the numbers don't show that, they're going to continue to get better. So they're going to be tough. The Phillies, we already saw what happened there. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen the Nationals yet. But I like where the Braves are at. I think they're in a good spot. There are a lot of young guys that are starting to come around and continue to make that next step or improvement that they are expected to make. And that's fun to watch. We'll have to see what happens over the course of 162. But they still have some question marks, and guys have to start – playing a little bit better here and there. Overall, I think we have to be pretty happy with where the team is. All right, we're going to get into a lot of that. Of course, there's plenty to talk about, storylines, whether it's the lineup, the pitching staff, the National League East, and also a couple of contract extensions for the Braves that have made big news over the last week, week and a half. Uh, Before we do that, though, invite you, as always, if you like what you hear, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. We appreciate your ratings and reviews. And you can also catch everything, every episode of the show, and all the other content over at FromTheDiamond.com. But as I mentioned, and as Nick just alluded to, a lot of things that we're going to talk about as to what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. And let's start with what's actually coming from the Diamond for this team and what's happened away from it we'll get to in just a little bit. And Nick, you talked about this. There have been some positives. There have been, I guess, a few things that certainly you work on over the course of a 162-game season. In the first couple of weeks from this club and seeing some struggles against a couple of tough teams in the division and then seeing the Braves really bounce back and take advantage of a couple teams like the Rockies and like the Cubs and, well, and the Marlins, of course, teams that you should be beating up on in the case of Miami, but being able to take advantage of a couple of clubs that just didn't have everything going uh, how long does it usually take for a team to really start to kind of form its collective identity as you get into a brand-new season? Well, it just depends. And You look at the Mets last year. They came together quick. They started out mm-hmm. first two weeks on fire, and you're sitting there going, if these guys can stay healthy, they should run away with the East. And it didn't happen. Guys didn't stay healthy. This team is still young. You're still figuring out who's going to be in that rotation. Uh, you're still figuring out who's going to be where as far as moving parts. Uh, in certain spots, as you're looking at Donaldson just getting going, Ender in the center field, 
uh, Acuna bouncing to center. Then you're having Camargo in left field sometimes, right field sometimes. So there are a lot of moving parts right now. And I think when you look at this this team in about a month or so, you're going to really find out who they are as a team. Uh, I, like I said, I like where they're at right now. I think they're going to continue to get better. It's the offense. I'm not worried about it all. You you have your ups and downs offensively. And the last two games against the Mets, uh, Stephen Matz was great, and so was Zach Wheeler. So the offense gets a little bit of a pass. They scored some runs, but just not enough. And when you're when you're looking at their defense and how good they are defensively, so defense and pitching win ball games. The offense is going to be there. The pitching staff's going to continue to come together, and that's what I'm looking forward to the most uh, with this team. Looking a month down the road and to kind of figure out who's going to be where in that rotation in the bullpen. Some guys might be in the rotation now that might be in the bullpen later. That's what I'm looking for, dude. I feel like about a month or so, that's when everything starts to mesh. Yeah, it does seem like there's just always that time element of kind of finding and defining some roles for different guys as well. And when you look up and down the lineup, I think we knew, you and I did, just talking all through the winter, through spring training, this is going to be a fluid situation. One thing that I don't know that anybody necessarily expected is the ultra-hot start that Dansby Swanson has gotten off to. There were some questions about, you know, what is there going to be any residual side effects from the time he's missed, from having wrist surgery, from not playing a ton in spring training? The answer to those questions, of course, was no. He's looked extremely good. Uh, first 12 games of the season, he reached in every single one of them, finally had an over on Friday night, but Dansby has looked great at the plate overall. The power's there, the opposite field power, the approach, the stance. We talked a little bit about it last week. What have you seen from Dansby Swanson early on, and do you feel like I do that this looks like this kid's taking the next step and this could be some pretty sustainable success regardless of whether or not he's one of the top three or four guys in the National League in RBI at the end of the year? This guy's making big-time contributions, it seems like, every night. He is, and you want to see him up in big situations. Last year, even with his swing mechanics not where they are this year, you still like to see him up in big situations. So he's made the adjustments mechanically, and now it just seems like he's in a better position to hit the ball hard consistently. I like where he's at. Uh, he's always in a good spot mentally. He uh, he is just a really strong person from a mental st- standpoint. But the mechanical adjustments he's made have made a huge difference. It allows him to be in a better position to lay off the pitches he was swinging at last year and the year before. That slider off the plate away is what that's his kryptonite. And he, he was in last year. It was it was so frustrating at times because you'd sit there and go, "How are you swinging at this every single time?" And what was happening is he was overcommitting with his swing because his mechanics were a little bit off. Now he's able to stay behind the baseball and get a better view of it with his eyes before his body starts to attack and he makes that decision. So he's laying off those pitches and now he's also staying behind the ball better. Uh, His hands are are in a better position. They're staying in the slot uh, in the plane of the baseball more consistently and longer. It's just really paid off and put a lot of hard work. He's a kid that gets $7 million out of the draft. He's successful and he was successful for a reason. Last year he could have said, my wrist was the problem. That's why I didn't uh, do as well as I wanted to do. And I'm just going to continue to work on getting healthy and everything else will come. But he said, I have to get healthy for one. Number two, I've got to make some adjustments. And he finally makes those adjustments. And now he's just in a better spot to hit on a consistent basis. So I think it's sustainable. um, And I I think that you're going to see him continue to develop and 
there are going to be some ups and downs. Everybody has ups and downs, but he's just in a better better place, and I, and I like, and I think he could sustain the success that he's had so far this year. And we talked about the quality of his defense quite a bit. We saw that again on Friday night as he made what I guess a lot of people refer to now as the Derek Jeter, the jump play from deep in the hole. It seems like Dansby, positionally speaking, you know, the Braves really focused in on that in 2018. I think that benefited him and also just paying off the hard work that a lot of these guys are doing defensively. That component for this club, which you hit on a little bit earlier, you put that out there and playing at a high level behind a pitching staff that's able to execute and more times than not, once that offense gets clicking, you're going to have a chance to win a ball game each and every night. And it is going to rely on different people at different times. But I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to Dansby Swanson and what I guess a lot of people may roll their eyes at. But whatever the clutch gene is, this kid has it. You definitely want to see him get that opportunity. If it's late and close, if the Braves need to you know, walk off a game against the Marlins, he seems to be on speed dial for that. Uh, he's just done some extremely good things when it comes to coming up with big hits and being up there at the right time to help his team win a game. Now, when you look up and down the lineup, obviously if Swanson's producing, that's going to change things, I think, in the dynamics as Brian Snitker looks to put the best starting nine or, well, the best starting eight for most National League games out there you know, one through eight, what order are they going to go in? We've seen Dansby jump from the eight spot up to the number six spot in the last week, and it kind of begs the question, I know it's early. We're a couple of weeks into the season. Ray's playing right about just above 500 ball as we head into the weekend. You look at the top of the order, we've seen Ozzy Albies get some opportunities to lead off against left-handed pitching. We've seen Ender Inciarte, though, get the lion's share of the leadoff duties for the Braves. But for Ender, this has just been something that for whatever reason – at the start of every season, he just doesn't seem to get out of the gates the way that he wants to. Another tough night on Friday against the Mets. You look at the average, it's dropped down well below 200. How long do you look at giving someone the most at-bats, most plate appearances on the team if they are in a slump or just not able to get themselves going at the top of the order? Because we all know it's crucial to have somebody setting the table and energizing the lineup up there. Yeah, it all depends on how the offense is doing and how the team's doing. If the team's winning ball games, I think you keep him there and give him that opportunity to kind of bust out because he's not a 159 hitter. I think he's right. a whole lot better than that. He's got to get going. If the offense is not scoring runs and the team's not winning games, you got to make a, a change. So I want to give him that opportunity. I want the offense to really come around because I think he is best suited at the top of the order the way the lineup's constructed right now. The problem is, who do you move up there, and how do you how do you lengthen the lineup then? Because I don't know if you really want Ozzy leading off every day. Uh, if if he's hit, hitting left handed, if he's hitting right handed, he's in there every day in the leadoff spot for me. Um, but if he, but you don't face a lefty every day, so you got to bounce that lineup around. I don't. If you move Acuna out of the cleanup spot, how do you fill that role? Marquez has done a nice job, but then you've got to fill five and six, and you've got to lengthen that way. So if you, if you do that, then you have Acuna in the top spot. You have Donaldson, Freddie Freeman, Marcakis, and then you're looking at Dansby maybe, uh, and then filling in the back end through there. Dansby, Ozzy, uh, Ender, and then the catcher is probably what you would do. Yeah. But do you feel like that's lengthened enough? And I, and I, I think that hmm. might be something to think about. Uh, it, it's – it's just tough, man. It's really tough because the because of the way the lineup's constructed. So ultimately, you need Ender to to get back on track and, and be that leadoff guy that he can be. Yeah, there's no two ways about that. In a perfect world, if Ender Inciarte is the kind of player he was in the second half in terms of kind of hitter, 
and the kind of hitter he was for much of 2017, it answers a lot of questions and it does allow you to lengthen the lineup. And I guess, again, it's early and just kind of these theories of, you know, maybe riding the hot hand, maybe doing what you did last year with Ron Lacuna, where you just put somebody in the leadoff spot and see if that kind of gets them engaged and locked into the game. Do you have any thoughts one way or another about the possibility of a guy like Dansby Swanson leading off and hitting at the top of the order, especially the way he's swinging the bat this year? He runs the bases extremely well, high baseball IQ guy, knows how to get on base, works his walks. That, I would imagine, if you're looking for the opportunity to not have to hit left-handed Ozzie Albies at the top of the lineup every single day, if you have some reservations there, Dansby might be a nice balance if you have to go and make a change because Ender just can't seem to get himself going, get himself on track. What do you think? Well, I mean, I'm okay with it, uh, but I, I don't want – it's tough because I don't really want to mess Dansby up, and yeah. I want Dansby to continue to swing the bat the way he's swinging it now. If you move him to the leadoff spot, does he change? Um, there's a little bit more pressure in the leadoff spot than there is in the sixth spot. Uh, actually, there's a lot, lot more well, pressure at the certainly. leadoff spot. So – does how does he adjust to that? And and that's one option. Uh, I didn't really think about it just because of the fact that I just like where he's at right now. But then you look at who protects Marcakis after that. So you're you're in a little bit of a bind either way you do it. Uh, but I I, w- I wouldn't be shocked if they decided to try that. The way he's swinging the bat, he's getting on base, he's taking pitches. The on base percentage is 99 points higher than the batting average, which mm-hmm. is great. So you know he's going to get on base. Uh, I want to see him continue to ride this hot streak out. And like I said, I think you still give Ender that little leash uh, for a little bit longer and kind of see where they're at. They, they might try that soon, though. Uh, it gets right-handed pitching, you just never know, and it's not a bad idea. So I, I'm just waiting for them to, to make some decision on do we try something new or not. And like I said, if the offense, if today they come out and the offense scores six runs, seven runs, Tomorrow they do the same thing, and and uh, Ender Ender will not be in the leadoff spot today. But um, you know, in the next few days, if the offense just continues to roll and continues to put runs on the board, and they win games. I still give Ender that shot. Now we're sitting here on April the thirteenth. The Braves are about to play the third of their four games against the Mets. It's slated to be Jason Vargas, of course, a veteran left-hander. The Braves will be facing, which means Ozzy Albies, as Nick just said, is going to be at the top of the order most likely, and that's where he's been against lefties. He's been very good against them. Just in case you're wondering how these breakdowns have gone thus far, and we're talking about the smallest of sample sizes almost with just you know 13 games under their belts right now, but Ozzy is hitting 333 against lefties. His OPS is up over 850. Meanwhile, against righties, he's held his own. He's batting 289. Not a whole lot of damage done, though. OPS is below 750, which is passable, certainly, for most middle infielders, but we've seen what Ozzy Albies can be overall when he really gets himself going. And, of course, we'll talk a lot about Ozzy before this whole thing is done. But I have liked giving him the opportunity to hit at the top of the order. I think it it kind of energizes him in the same way that it energized Ronald Lacuna last year. And I don't know. It's an interesting question you bring up as to whether or not it would really change what's going on with Dansby. I don't necessarily think that it would just based on just kind of his overall mentality and the fact that when he's challenged or given opportunities, he seems to you know really thrive in that particular role or, or really desire to have those opportunities, I guess, would be probably the best way to put it. But you get into the middle of the lineup, and after Marcakis, maybe you're looking at Tyler Flowers. You're looking at Brian McCann when he gets back, and Ozzie Albies, if he's not leading off, will certainly be hitting somewhere down there. There'd be some interesting um, opportunities for different guys to step in there. But if you look at what Ender Inciarte did so well last year, probably his best spot in the order, 
he was batting seventh. So maybe taking a little pressure off of him would help him out if the Braves decide to shuffle the deck. And there's a lot of time to figure this out. They've played exactly 13 baseball games as we sit here on a Saturday morning recording this podcast. And all of these questions are not going to be answered before we get out of the month of April. That's for sure. So uh, let's turn the page to the Braves pitching staff. We've talked a, a lot about what's going to go on in this rotation. We've seen some younger guys get some opportunities. Kind of a mixed bag in the early going. Kyle Wright's had a little bit of an up and down three starts thus far. He was really struggling against the Mets on a Friday night and and still looking for his first career win. But Mike Fultonevich is right around the corner. It looks like one more rehab start for Fulte, and they could get him back on regular rest before this next week is over. Who gets bumped out of rotation for Mike Fultonevich, and how much of a lift, really, more to the point, is it going to be to finally get your number one starter back and have him every fifth day, hopefully, for a while? It's going to be a huge lift. Kevin Gosman coming back was a big deal, and Fulte uh, getting back on this team and healthy is going to be a huge deal. I don't know who gets bumped, and, and I think they're probably looking more at skipping a guy here and there, uh, doing that six-man rotation thing when he does get back. I think that's where you're at because when you look at Kyle Wright, to me, Kyle Wright's not going to improve and get better at the minor league level. Right. I know he didn't do well yesterday, uh, but he's a guy that his stuff is so good. I just think he goes to AAA and dominates, and it is what it is. And if he's at the big league level, he can learn. Like yesterday, for example, their second inning, Brandon Nimmo's up, man on first base, pitcher on deck. He gets 3-0, throws a 3-1 fastball right down the middle. The next pitch, they try to go inside on Nemo, and the ball runs over the plate, homer. And the pitcher's sitting on deck with two outs. So how does, does he, in AAA, he probably goes right out to hit number eight hitter, and it's no big deal, and he gets him out. The big league level, you've got to learn. You've got to make adjustments. If he's going to throw that pitch, he's either got to bury it inside or he has to throw something away because if he leaks – on the arm side, it's going to run over the middle of the plate, and it, what happened yesterday is likely going to happen. So that type of learning experience at the big league level is something you do not get in the minor leagues. So I, that's one of the example for why I think Kyle Wright should stay in the big leagues and, and pitch every five days or every six, depending on what they do. Sean Newcomb, big start for him coming up. So if he does well, which we hope he does, and he pitched well last time out, You've got to still stick with him. So I was saying with Sean Newcomb, with after his first start, you're sitting there going, okay, he's got to figure things out. He had the four innings. He didn't allow a run, but he, he walked a bunch of guys. He didn't look like Sean Newcomb. Then he comes out his next start, struggles a little early, and then just dominates the, the latter part of the game. So when I was looking at that second start, I'm saying this is a huge start for Sean Newcomb because we know Fulton Evans is coming back. Newcomb has to get back on track. I want to see him back that up with a, another good start, uh, but I think in general they're gonna they're gonna go with that six man rotation because they have so much depth with the starting pitching. Who are you gonna send down? It, nobody's gonna benefit. These guys in the rotation right now are not gonna benefit from pitching at AAA. To have Mike Fulton Evans back is gonna be huge, but I think lengthening this starting rotation a little bit is gonna be big for everybody too. Yeah, it certainly will be, and I think one of the biggest trickle-down effects that you're going to find, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out, is if the starting rotation can really stabilize and start working into the sixth inning or beyond, that's only going to be beneficial to the bullpen on top of that. And we've seen how beneficial it was last year for the Braves to do what you said in terms of, you know, you skip a guy here or there, you have another guy that 
will lengthen the overall rotation. So you're not necessarily committing to the six-man rotation, but in a roundabout sort of a way, we saw the Braves really benefit from that for the entirety of 2018. And I can't imagine that they're not going to go back to that well as long as they can. And the Braves do have this wealth of pitching. And I, I think you're right in terms of when you look at all of these different arms that you've got, and, and think about it, Mike Soroka, Tuki Toussaint have not thrown a major league pitch just yet. Whatever you might get out of Luis Gohara at some point, if he's still kind of in the back of your mind for some kind of role, I don't know. But specifically, Toussaint and Soroka, these are guys you're going to see at the big league level too. We saw Bryce Wilson briefly. We've seen Kyle Wright for a handful of starts. But once Fulton Evans jumps back in here, I think it is going to be pretty crucial for a guy like Sean Newcomb especially. He seems to be the one that has a little bit more to prove, I guess, than some of the other starters in rotation in terms of Fulton Evans, Gosman, and Tehran. It's going to be fascinating to see exactly how the Braves decide to manage some innings this year and exactly who gets opportunities and who earns these opportunities, I guess, may be the most important thing of all. Well, Max Freed's taking advantage of his oh, yeah. opportunities. And Max Freed, that's so, a very good point. And I don't yeah, know why I always so, forget him, but Max Freed as well. Let's go ahead and throw his <laughs> name out there. He's been good. He's been great. And did we expect that from him? I don't think we did. I think that, you know, you and I talked about it in the offseason that we felt like he would be better suited for a bullpen role. Yeah. Well, he's taken the starting opportunity and, and run with it. We were wrong, so, Nick. We were wrong. We were wrong. We were wrong. But he's also has, he has a different mentality. He's looking, he said, yeah. He went to the bullpen and said, I'm going to attack these hitters. They're going to hit my best stuff. If they hit it, so be it. And that first start that he had, that's exactly the attitude he had. He came right at guys. Uh, his curveball was outstanding. He added a slider, which to me was a big deal because I'm saying, okay, if he has three pitches, if the curveball's off, he doesn't really want to go to the changeup, so he's better suited for the bullpen because he can work on the fastball and get through uh, three guys in an inning. Now he's got four pitches, so he adds the slider to the mix. And I know he didn't throw it much last time. He threw it five times in his first start. But it's a pitch that he can start to use more. Now that just makes him even better. He's really impressed me, and he's throwing strikes. That's the big reason. Because when you looked at him last year, it was like ball one, ball two, strike, strike, ball. And all of a sudden now he's going six pitches on a hitter. So now he's attacking and getting ahead. But he's taking advantage of his opportunity as well, and uh, these guys are going to have opportunities. Mike Soroka is going to get that opportunity before we know it as long as he's healthy. There, there's a lot of competition here in the starting rotation, and a lot of these starts mean a lot to a lot of guys. And I'm just curious to see what they're going to do with Kyle Wright. If he doesn't pitch well, I think he's going to continue to get better. And I want to go back to his start last night too. In that second inning, I, I mentioned the home run ball to Nimmo. There's a ground ball of Dominic Smith's bat that bounced over Freddie Freeman's head. That started the whole thing. Otherwise, yes, uh, Nimmo wouldn't even gotten up. And then he makes the one mistake. Now he's 2 nothing net. Then he loses command of his cur- uh, slider and fastball a little bit. And, and that's where the, he broke down to the fourth. But he could have been, been three innings, uh, no runs, if that bad hop would have happened. So I'm just very optimistic that he's going to get things turned around. He's just so good. So I don't know. It's, it's fun. It's fun to talk about. And I'm glad I'm not making the decisions because I would have a tough time knocking anybody out of rotation. I would, I, they're going to have to weave guys in, weave guys out. And hopefully everybody has success. Yeah. What's funny about Max Freed too is, and kind of the reason it's not that he's, you know, slips your mind because how could he, because his first couple of starts and that one he threw in Colorado in particular 
I was impressed by that because that's not the easiest place to go out there and execute all your pitches, but he really seemed to have. His curveball was good yeah, there, too. It was, and that uh, that really surprised me. He was getting great break on that, and he was also commanding, and as you pointed out, he's attacking the strike zone. He's going after these hitters, and I'll say it every time. I mean, if you go after somebody with your best, you're throwing strikes, you're being aggressive, and their best just happens to be better than yours and that at bat or on that particular day, I can live with that, and I think most people can. So it's good to see that mentality being demonstrated by a guy like Max Fried. And I, I guess to kind of go back, to, to back over myself on this bus, you know, Sean Newcomb just <laughs> seems like the guy that despite he has so many more starts and so much more big league experience thus far than Max Fried, they're really about the same age. But with Newcomb, it always just seems to be, is he going to establish the strike zone? Is he going to command? Is he going to get on a roll? Is he going to string these starts together? Fried hasn't really had that opportunity yet, but he should be earning that opportunity or has earned it, I think, in his first couple of starts. There's no way you can take him out of rotation. So I guess my point, if I was making one, was that it seems a little more tenuous for (laughs) Sean Newcomb of all the Braves starters that he may be kind of pitching to stay in that rotation as the year wears on more so than anybody else because he's not under a big contract like a Gosman. And when I say big, I mean nine-plus million dollars for him, $12 million for Julio Tehran, and Mike fulton is obviously Mike fulton So I'm, I'm guessing just playing the numbers game for Sean Newcomb, there's a lot to win or lose both on the field and just in terms of your overall role, depending on what you do every five days for him, really more so than anybody else because of the pressure of the Max Freeds, the Mike Sorokas, the Tuki Toussaint's, the Kyle Wrights, the Bryce Wilsons, and everybody who's going to be coming up after that as well. There's just a lot of pitching for this club, and it's really the best problem to have. Well, you mentioned Bryce Wilson. Bryce Wilson's almost gotten jumped by a lot of these guys. Crazy, isn't it? Tuki Toussaint got jumped by a lot of guys. It's very possible that somebody comes up, Mike Soroka gets healthy, he comes up, he jumps, all of a sudden Kyle Wright comes out and throws three or four great games in a row, and now where's Sean Newcomb sitting at? Yeah. So it, it is, to me, when you look at Sean Newcomb, he's got the ability to, to really pitch well. It's about, like you said, establishing the strike zone, commanding his pitches. Uh, you don't know what you're going to get. And the, if he had a good spring training, then you probably wouldn't be talking about this. But he didn't have a good spring training. The first start wasn't good. The second start was much better. Mm-hmm. But his leash feels like it's a little bit short just yeah. because you don't know what you're going to get. And when you look at his numbers right now, they don't look terrible. He only has five strikeouts in 11 innings, but the ERA is 164. And when you're, when you're looking at him and from the eye test and you're sitting there going, okay, what's this guy going to give me today? I think that's where, where the numbers don't mean anything with Sean Newcomb. I want to see Sean Newcomb attack and get ahead of hitters, use his fastball effectively up in the zone, and make competitive pitches and get his release point out front where he gets the curveball to have good break and the changeup has good depth. That's what I want to see from Sean Newcomb. If he's showing me good stuff and he's around the strike zone, then you don't worry about him. But the walks are a big problem. If he's getting behind guys, it's a big problem. Uh, if if he's inconsistent with his release point, it's a big problem. So I, I think that as the season moves along, if he can continue to get more consistent, then he's fine. And you don't worry about him. But like you said, it, it's a good problem to have um, with all these starting pitchers. And when I mentioned Kyle or Bryce Wilson and Tuki Toussaint, we're going to see them again, but we might not see them in the starting rotation because there are just so many good pitchers in this organization. When you're trying to win ballgames, you have to go with the hot hands. 
Yeah, you do. And I think you've got to find ways to bring guys in and give them the opportunity to contribute to this club because and nobody is unaware of this now. The Braves didn't go out and sign a bunch of bullpen arms to you know strengthen that group up. I think that they've got you know two or three relievers that you can really count on, another couple that you see the upside in, and then a couple of spots that are going to be, for pretty much every club, kind of up for grabs dependent on performance. And that's going to be something that some of these young arms, and Tuki Toussaint in particular, has had a little bit of experience relieving you know, thus far in, in 2018, he looked good in the playoffs doing it. And he's got the kind of arm that you think could play up in that that role as well. So I look at him as a pretty obvious opportunity to have kind of a weapon there. And if you needed a multi-inning weapon, I think it could be that as well. But lots of questions to be answered over the course of 162 games and lots of arms for the Braves to utilize, which, again, is the best problem to have because it's not a problem whatsoever. You just got to find a place to, to put all these guys and you know, try to weave them into your plan, if you will. On the other side of the Braves pitching staff is not just what is going on with the starting staff and what could happen with the starting staff, but what's been going on with the bullpen. We started the season with a pretty disastrous stop in Philadelphia where the Braves bullpen was battered about by a very stout lineup for the Philadelphia Phillies. 11 earned runs were let up by the Braves bullpen in those three games. Since then, though, Nick, would you be surprised to know that the Braves bullpen has an ERA just about three and a half, just a tick above and they've really seemed to come in and cover some important innings and get some big outs for the Braves, especially during uh, that streak of winning seven out of eight games. Bullpen with five and a third scoreless innings after Kyle Wright was knocked out on Friday. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every small sample size is the one that we need to go on for the next four, five, six months, but it has to be encouraging to start seeing some of these guys come in and pitch a little bit more up to their capabilities, and that's what we've seen by and large since that opening series. The Braves' bullpen has been much more of an asset than a liability. They all have good stuff. Is everybody going to pitch up to their capabilities every time out? No. We talked about this yesterday on our show. Is These bullpen guys could be running out there three days in a row, and they might be 50% of their their health. You know, as far as if you're 100%, then you feel great. If you're 50%, you still have to go. They, they aren't going to say, okay, uh, I can't go today because I don't feel good. They're going to continue to go out there. So we don't know what they're feeling when they go out there. And bullpen job is a very difficult job. Mm-hmm. You're expected to pitch well every time out. And when you pitch poorly, you get crushed. Yeah. Luke Jackson, for example, opening day gets beat around. People are like, why is he on the team? Uh, he should not be on the team, blah, blah, blah. He's had six scoreless appearances since then. Chad Sabaka's had one bad appearance. And when you're looking at their numbers, Sabaka's 6.35 ERA, Luke Jackson 4.7 ERA, but they pitched well other than one outing. And these guys are going to continue to get better. But, but to me, the big key here, if you, if you notice the starting rotation, what they're giving, uh, they're giving they were giving six, six innings, seven every now and then. So they're taking the load off the bullpen a little bit. And mm-hmm. the bullpen, the pressure on the bullpen wasn't quite as high over this stretch. And I think that's going to be a big key too, because if you're asking the bullpen to cover four to five innings every day, then you're asking for trouble. Yeah, it ain't going to work. Guys are going to struggle because you're looking at three three uh, relievers to four relievers to try at to least. fill that the, the rest of the game. One of them is going to have a bad day. So if you can continue to get more out of your starting pitching, the bullpen is going to continue to pitch well. Uh, A.J. Mentors looked better. I thought he looked pretty good last night. Viz, you just have to get him healthy and keep him healthy. Uh, and those are question marks that they have to answer as well. Who's going to pitch on back-to-back days if they have to use Mentor and Viz in the same game? Can mm-hmm. Viz come back? 
Uh, do you want Mentor to close the next day? You know, there, there are a lot of questions with the bullpen, but if the starting rotation continues to give innings, then this bullpen has the capability of, of pitching well, and that's what they've done lately. Yeah, they have. You brought up Luke Jackson, and I know a lot of folks were wondering opening day, everything looked so bad for the Braves bullpen in particular. Jackson was kind of the lightning rod of that because he came in and pretty much worked himself into a media jam, gives up a grand slam. It's pretty hard to not get noticed in the box score when that kind of thing happens. Since then, though, you're right, six innings of scoreless ball, six and two-thirds, actually, only two walks, 11 punch-outs for Luke Jackson. And I'm not saying that this means all of a sudden you found your new high-leverage reliever, but if you can start getting some quality out of some of the quantity of the arms that you have, and he can play that role somewhere in the fifth, sixth, seventh inning where he comes in and gets some important outs for you and bridges that and gets to the – you know, the uh, the Vizcainos and the A.J. Minters and the guys that will be setting them up, which could be, you know, with Chad Sabaka or a Jesse Biddle or whoever it may be. Point being, you've got to have contributions from pretty much everybody in that bullpen on a given night. And you've got to figure out a way to, I guess, take the load off of them, as you pointed out, because you can't count on everybody to come out there every night and throw you some scoreless innings. And if it's not just the Braves that, you know, suffer through that, it's just the way that this game has evolved and the reliance on the bullpen. I mean, the Braves lost a game by a 6-2 score on Friday night, and if I'm not mistaken, did they not use four or five relievers in order to get through that game, including A.J. Minter, who ended up closing the thing out, even though the Braves were down. So you, I guess you kind of have to factor all that stuff in when you start thinking about workload and how you want to go through these things and, and try to get some of these outs and try to cover some of these innings because when your starting rotation is not carrying you into the latter portion of the game, at least the sixth or seventh inning, it certainly, if you do it days and days and days in a row, can really become problematic in a hurry and really deplete your bullpen and kind of wear them out. You can, and we've seen guys getting worn out before. You look at Dan Winkler. Dan Winkler's at AAA mm-hmm. more than likely because he got worn out last year. So that happens every single year, um, and that's why you have to have depth, and that's one of the reasons that we're talking about a couple starting pitchers might end up in the bullpen. Because at some point in the season, you're going to need those guys. Somebody's going to break down. Somebody's going to struggle. You're going to have to make some moves. And that's just part of it. But these bullpen guys, the stuff is really good. Even Josh Tomlin's done a nice job after his first outing. Yeah. So they aren't afraid to put him in. And Snicker said he, he didn't pitch for like a week and a half. Yeah. And then he came in and pitched well. And then Snit's like, I've got to get him back out there. And he pitched well again uh, the other day. So – Wes Parsons has been a, has been a big bonus for this team, but he's already got eight appearances. So yeah. you've got to you've got to lower the workload a little bit with him as well, because he's going to be a big piece of the puzzle down the road. But I think more than anything with this bullpen, it's just about taking the load off of them, uh, giving them some rest here and there, and just keeping them healthy. Yeah, it is Wes Parsons. You bring up that's a really good point. He's been tremendous for the Braves. Kind of came in his spring training under the radar. You knew a little bit about him, maybe, but when you thought about all the starting pitching prospects the Braves had, Wes Parsons' name was not necessarily at the top of that list. But all he's done is go to the bullpen and answer the call each and every time that Brian Snitker has made it. And eight appearances in the first thirteen games. Yeah, you're right. May want to keep an eye on that as far as workload is concerned and the frequency of how many times, because not only do these guys get into games and pitch and we'll see it, but a lot of times guys are getting up and throwing maybe a couple of times, and even if they don't get used that day, they're still getting up and down, getting warm, then cooling off. So just all of the things you have to manage when it comes to a bullpen. But just a little bit better work, at least, from this Braves bullpen, more encouraging work, to say the least, after the really disastrous stop in Philadelphia to start the season. They seem like they're starting to right the ship, and hopefully that's a trend that will continue for the Braves. 
Let's turn the page completely from what's happening on the field and talk a little bit about what's happened off the field the last week and a half. I'd be remiss not to mention that in last week's episode, as we kind of got the season kicked off and, and talked about the early results, that we did not dive into Ronald Acuna's contract extension, a $100 million contract extension at that for a guy with less than one year's worth of service time, reminiscent of the deal that the St. Louis Cardinals gave to Albert Pujols many years ago. Ronald Acuna, obviously with this deal, going to be set up for life. And about the time that all sinks in that, hey, the Braves have signed this this cornerstone, this franchise face of the future to a long-term deal that could keep him in Atlanta for a decade. Well, Alex Anthopoulos wasn't done there. He signed Ozzy Albies to one of the most fascinating team-friendly contract extensions I think I've ever seen. I know you were a little bit surprised. I mean, you pretty much called me about the time the news broke just to see, hey, I mean, can you believe this? Because it's the second extension in about a week and a half. Ozzy for seven years, $35 million guaranteed. couple of team option years could bump it up closer to $50 million. But, Nick, 19 years, theoretically, of control of Ron Lacuna <laughs> and Ozzy Albies for about $160, $170 million. So about half of what the Phillies paid for 13 years of Bryce Harper. I know that's apples and oranges, but, man, when you think about the long-term future of this team, the cost certainty that the club just locked in, and then a couple of guys that obviously feel like they made deals that can help set them up for life financially. There's a lot to unpack here, but if you're a Braves fan, you have to be pretty darn happy that you know that Acuna and Albies are going to be a big piece of your future going forward. What did you take out of all this, and did you expect any of this kind of stuff? Because it was an awfully quiet and cold winter. I was shocked, because, especially the Ozzy deal, because I thought Fulty might be the next guy to get extended. Mm-hmm. And we didn't hear any talk of any extension anywhere. And that's one of the reasons that I love the way Alex Anthopoulos does business. Because it, nothing was out there. Nobody knew. And all of a sudden, he signs. And that's why I was so shocked. And that's why I called you. Because I was like, wow. I had no idea Ozzy was even talking about a long-term extension. Yeah. When I go to the Acuna deal, I like the deal. I like the eight years, $100 million. I'm not big on those two club options on the back end of the deal. That might be what they had to do to get the deal done. I don't know. I think what's going to happen with that deal is as long as he plays well, which I think he's going to, they extend him at the back end of that deal. I agree. So he never even sees those club sure, options. Anyway. I agree. So, and that's probably what they should do and what they will do. So mm-hmm. when you look at that deal, you just kind of, for me, you just kind of throw out those club options, even though I don't really know why they were there in the first place. Uh, but then you're looking at Ozzy and, He's only 30, only thirty five million uh, for the seven years, but think about Ozzy and think about he's taking care of his family. It's guaranteed money. The money is not going anywhere. He's thirty five million dollars guaranteed. Ozzy still is two years away from being arbitration eligible, so he wasn't really going to make any money for two years anyway. Uh, and now all of a sudden you give him uh, guaranteed thirty five. So I see where he's coming from. I know a lot of people are going to say. He sold himself short, but what? There are a lot of what ifs too. I mean, what if he doesn't hit left-handed? What if he gets hurt? You know, there's there's so many what ifs for him. I think it's a, it's a good deal for him, uh, and I think that if he does develop like we think he can develop, even if he does decide to turn on right-handed only, I still think he's going to hit. But he's a guy that to me, if he played the potential. He could be a hundred million dollar guy. So in that perspective, yeah, he gave up a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But the best thing about this is the Braves are trying to invest in the team. 
by investing in these two guys and getting them to team-friendly deals for the most part, now they have a lot of money to spend elsewhere. So that just makes the team even better. And that's the, that's the outlook that I'm taking because this team, if we talked about it in the winter, they had like four needs, but they didn't go out and spend the money. They needed some bullpen arms. They didn't feel like the the contracts were right. They need an outfielder. They got Marcakis. There are a lot of a lot of pieces of the puzzle. They're going to continue to be pieces of the puzzle. But now with these deals, you've got two really good players for reasonable rates, and that allows you to have more money to spend elsewhere. Yeah, it really does. And we were talking about uh, probably a couple months ago, right around the time the arbitration stuff was was going on about what Mookie Betts got, for example. If Ron Lacuna is sitting around you know, going through the arbitration process, there's a pretty good chance that even in his, you know, second to last or penultimate, let's use that word, arbitration, he was going to get a huge, a record-setting bump if he plays the way he's capable of. And I'm not saying he and Mookie Betts are the same guy just yet because I'm not trying to put any more on Ronald Acuna than's already been heaped on there. But let's just say he continues his star trek and becomes, no pun intended there, and continues to play up to his capabilities and becomes a star, he's going to be making a lot of money in arbitration. And I think a lot of folks would expect that. You look at a $100 million contract, it's really hard to look at a 21, 22-year-old kid and wonder why they took that deal. The Aussie one is really fascinating because of the amount of, I'll say, criticism that came across the industry. Jeff Passan of ESPN was one of those who was immediately reporting the story and also saying that, He was hearing from executives, players, agents, analytics people, development, scouts, whoever it is, they're all saying the same thing, that Ozzie Albies left too much money on the table and that it was just possibly the worst contract ever for a player. Keith Law, also with ESPN, he called the contract just brutal. I just find it to be fascinating in the respect of from the human element, and I tweeted this myself, I am never going to get a $35 million offer probably to do anything in my life that I'm aware of. I don't know how easy it would be to turn that down over a period of time, again, as a 22-year-old player. And Mark Bowman had brought up in a recent column at MLB.com, Ozzie Albies broke his elbow on a check swing a couple of years ago. And I don't know if that was a huge factor in what he was thinking about how if his career gets derailed and he never gets to cash in, that's one of those question marks that could be in your head. And on top of that, you talked about Dansby Swanson a little bit earlier, a guy that got, what, $7 million to be the number one pick in the draft a few years ago. Ronald Acuna signed for $100,000. Ozzie Albee signed for just over $300,000. These are not guys who made it with a big bonus and want to, you know, huff it through the big leagues for three or four years making five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 if someone offers a big contract like this. So I'm guessing that when we get to the CBA and when I get to the point here, there's going to be a lot of focus on contracts like this because the baseball economics long before Ozzy Albies, Ronald Acuna, and some of these other extensions we've seen recently have really been skewed toward veteran players getting paid more for what they've done than what they're going to do going forward. Kind of like Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, guys like that. And the salaries of younger players, no matter how good they are, they're having perhaps some of their best years for close to the league minimum or extremely low salaries. And that's how the whole economics of the game is being balanced out. Nick, I don't know if you really have any thoughts about this in particular, strong thoughts one way or another, but it seems like we're moving towards some kind of reckoning of trying to figure out something that has either less team control 
less arbitration, earlier free agency, whatever it is. I don't know what the solution is, but it seems like these two sides are going to get to the table and have some really heated conversations about how to balance out the salaries of baseball players, both young and old. I don't know what they're going to do. I think that I think you have to fix the manipulation of service time for yeah. one. And I think they're going to do that. I don't know how they're going to do it. That's And that's a, a lot of the reason these team-friendly contracts are, are being signed because they, they're manipulating service time. For instance, Ronald Acuna, they get an extra year of control with him because they kept him down last year for a certain amount of time. So he's not going to be a free agent. He wouldn't be a free agent for seven years. They're saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll extend you now because you're stuck with us anyway. And you're going to have to go through the arbitration process. You know what you're going to get. Uh, those are... There's a lot of stuff to look at. I think arbitration should be moved up a year. Uh, I do just because of it's so hard to get to three years for one. And yeah. looking at Ozzy Albies, if Ozzy was going to be arbitration eligible after this year, then he might not assign that deal. But he's not. He has two more years. And like you mentioned, the, the elbow injury, who knows what could happen. If he, he got hurt and he couldn't play anymore, now he doesn't hardly make any money. So when you're taking these young kids and saying, you know what, you still have two to three years before you even make any money. And then you have uh, five years before you become a free agent and really make a lot of money. Well, here's X amount of dollars. Do you want it or do you not? And that's hard for these guys to turn down. Yeah. The interesting part, and I've mentioned this with the Acuna deal, is the club options. I don't understand the club options on Ozzy's deal either. I don't understand why they would sign that unless it, like I said, unless they had to put that in to make the deal work because those are really cheap options for Ozzy. No kidding. And they don't really do anything for him. So they don't do anything for Acuna either. And and that's, that's a little bit interesting. And I don't, like I said, I don't know. I wasn't in the meetings obviously uh, to, to figure out why they're doing that. But the, the deal as a whole is hard for those kids to turn down. I could, there's no way I could turn down that kind of money. And Ozzy has a brother, sister, and mom. Uh, his dad passed away, so he's taking care of his family. That's something you have to look at as well. When you look at Dansby Swanson, he got $7 million. So Dansby could afford to wait it out a little bit. These kids can't, and that's okay. They're fine with the deal. They want to be Braves. They want to be around here for a long time, and they've got that opportunity. So you have to be excited as a Braves fan. These guys are going to be around, but as long as the kids are okay with them, that's all that matters. Yeah, I think that's obviously the most important part. I mean, this was a negotiation of some sort. I think that some criticism has come down on the agents, particularly about those option years. I mean, they they are, you're right, a little bit curious it, at the very least. Maybe that's being polite when it comes to Ozzy Albies. A couple of $7 million club option years, a $4 million buyout on that first one. And you mentioned with Acuna, maybe it never gets to that point and you decide, hey, we're going to extend this guy. So that's there as more of the opportunity to let them know there's more money that could be earned, that you know what it's going to be. So maybe some degree of certainty or I don't know. Maybe it's just part of putting the whole thing together and, and trying to max out the value a little bit more, make it a little bit higher. Acuna obviously got a lot more than Ozzy Albies, and I really did when I saw $35 million. If I'm running a club, I mean, I'm excited to sign a guy with this kind of upside to a deal that lets me basically average out about $5 million per season. They're not, neither of them are getting huge raises for 2019, really 2020 either. I don't think any of the bigger money kicks in for a couple of three years. So bringing this full circle back to the Braves and what they have or have not done yet, 
there is really becoming less and less of a reason or an impetus to not invest some more money into the payroll of this club because now you know what these two guys are making. You don't have to worry about the arbitration bomb that could have gone off in three or four years where, man, we didn't expect to pay somebody 20 or $25 million. It's going to be time for Alex Anthopoulos and company to identify some targets and bring over some guys who are making a little bit of money to supplement this club and hopefully put them over the top and build around this core. So the Braves are entering that really crucial point where everything should start to come together in a more full fashion than it did over a winter where one big signing was made and things got awfully quiet. I don't think that the Braves are going to be able to repeat that going forward because they're going to have money to spend and there's going to be moves to be made. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what they decide to do and when they decide to do it as well. Hey, you know what? what I'm just looking at Ozzy's numbers on that deal. He's getting a million this year, a million next year, and then he'll be arbitration eligible for the first time in 2021. Would have been. And that's a $3 million salary. So I was just looking at Fulton Evans too. Fulton made 2.2 his first year, made is making almost five this year. Yeah. That's where Ozzy would be his second year of arbitration at five million. And it jumps to seven, seven, seven. But it's hard to predict arbitration numbers. And Fulton Evans was an all-star last year and he got five million dollars. So when you look at the deal, I know the numbers I'm trying to make sense of the numbers, but it's hard to figure out what you would make, what you might do. Alex Anthopoulos said with the Aussie deal, he said he's a great defender. He's a great base runner. He's still a work in progress with a bat, mm-hmm. basically is what he said. So we're we're offering this deal based on potential. Yes. So there's got to be give and take with these deals too. And I feel like the Braves took a, took a risk by giving him this $35 million deal because they don't know exactly what he's going to be. We know what he can be. But right now, we don't know. He doesn't have that track record yet. No, he doesn't have the track record. I think the biggest thing is some of the optics of it, I guess, that a lot of people are getting caught up in. And I'm not saying it's wrong whatsoever to look at it and say, man, this guy left money on the table. Because I believe, I think you do too, that you know there may have been more money to be made by for Ozzie Albies depending on timing of his arbitration or getting to free agency or whatever it is. And there's a lot of stuff. Uh, this is a piece over at Fangraphs that said using projections based on his first full season or season and a half that Ozzie Albies would be worth about $280 million. Now, I get it. I understand the model. <laughs> I think it's interesting to see that, but I don't think that you were going to look at free agency and see Ozzie Albies getting a $280 million contract if he was a free agent tomorrow. Now, would he have gotten more than $35 million on the open market? Absolutely. I don't think there's any question about that. But that's the apples and oranges we get into when we start talking about open market versus having the opportunity to sign an extension or being offered an extension and trying to decide whether you want it or whether you don't want it. And I think the weirdest thing to kind of bring all this to a to a head or to a close and you kind of go back to the collective bargaining agreement coming up and whatnot is you just don't know the climate of free agency years from now, but there's enough that's happened in the last couple of years that makes you wonder. It's not 21 and 22-year-old future superstars that are hitting free agency. The Bryce Harpers and Manny Machados, who have a, a bit of a track record, those kind of guys, getting to free agency at 26 that is pretty unique. Mike Trout getting a huge extension happened because he's Mike Trout and because he's the best player in baseball and you knew he was going to get, you know, 300, 400 million dollars and that's exactly what happened, but it's easy to look at those numbers and think, well, if you get out there and you're a star, you're going to make that money and that could be true for the star guys, but there's a lot of different variables that go on getting to that point, getting to that level, playing at that level for a long enough time to earn that 
And again, if you're offered that kind of money, whether it's $100 million, $35 million, whatever it is, and some of these other extensions across baseball, and then you kind of wonder about what the certainty is in both life and in free agency going forward, there are enough questions to make you really have to consider having that opportunity to be financially set up. And I think that's what both of these kids did. And for the Braves, that works out extremely well. And for baseball as a whole, whether that's the player side, the owner side, whatever it is, they're going to have to figure out whatever the best system is going forward because, and I don't think you, you disagree with this, I'm all for the players getting paid because they're the guys that the fans are paying to see. I think that's pretty important and doesn't need to get lost in the weeds of you know arguing over somebody's extension or what a player is or is not worth. Well, the biggest thing is, is the player okay with it? I, I know all the, all the agents can do is give the player the information and lay it out there and the player decides yes or no. And I know the players' union is probably not going to be happy about the Ozzy deal, but that's yeah. okay. Uh, Ozzy's happy with it, and that's really all that matters. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see going forward what kind of changes, what kind of things happen in baseball, and it'll be really interesting to talk about something else besides the CBA, which is not coming up for a while. But big news for the Braves, certainly. Big news for Ronald Lacuna and big news for Ozzy Albies, and a good thing if you're a Braves fan, if you know that the core of your team is going to be around for quite a while. And, of course, Freddie Freeman's under contract for three more years. Braves have some other young players. And on the horizon, they have the money, I think the cost certainty to go forward and really decide what exactly their financial spending is going to be. And I think a lot of people would love to have the answer to that question or series of questions. Let's take a quick look around what's happening in Major League Baseball. I sent this to you, you know, putting the show together. Biggest surprise in the early going I'm going to say the Tampa Bay Rays because I think they're going to be around in that American League East right at or near the top. And I tell you, Nick, the real reason that I'm saying that is that they're super talented. The secondary reason that I'm saying that is Red Sox have looked pretty mortal and the Yankees have been so injured that if the Rays keep playing like this, they may be hard to catch. I I, I can agree with you. And I would just go and say my biggest surprise is the Red Sox, though. Okay. I did not expect them to be where they are. Their starting pitching has been Awful. terrible. Awful. David Price, ERA is six. Uh, Porcello's ERA is 13 and a half. Chris Sales at nine. Avaldi's eight, four. And Edwin Rodriguez is, is seven, seven, nine, eight. You can't win ball games like that. And they're going to be better than that. Uh, I'm worried about Sale a little bit. Yeah. Velocity is down. I worry a little bit about Price as well. So, what are they going to be? I don't know. Uh, but I, they, they shocked me a little bit with just the, the really poor start. The Yankees are hurt, so I'm not, I can't be shocked about that, although I feel like they're going to get better as well. The other one is that I thought was really interesting was Seattle, 13-3, and they, they're in a rebuild. Yeah, so that's what I heard. Their, their run differential is plus 38. That's how good the offense has been. So there, there are some surprises for sure. I'm happy for Kevin Cash, though, in Tampa. He does a great job. He has what he has, and and they're on a they're on a budget over there. But he gets the most out of these players, and they have a lot of good young players that believe in everybody, and they play together, and they they won ninety games last year. Who knows what they're going to do this year? Yeah, they're sitting there with the reigning American League Cy Young Award winner and Blake Snell. He's not going to be going anywhere for a while. They got Tommy Pham from the Cardinals. He's been an on base machine for him, and they're just a well put together squad that really has identified their strengths and has. In both youth and I think just enough experience and the right guy at the helm calling the shots to have this club in a position to take advantage of a couple of big rivals being down in their luck in the early going. So we know the American League East, when it plays out, is typically going to be two or three teams. But with the Orioles, 
uh, obviously in a down cycle and with the Toronto Blue Jays the same, the door may never be more open than 2019 for the Tampa Bay Rays to really make some noise and come out of that division and perhaps make an October run. So that's one of the many stories we can imagine, monitor. Could you imagine if they won the division? I, I, I'm imagining it right now. I know it's April the 13th, but I'm imagining it right now. That'd be insane. It certainly would be. I mean, I don't think it's what anybody would have expected, especially as many games as the Red Sox won last year. You'd think they'd have at least 95 or 100 in them, and they still may. There's a lot of baseball left to be played. I want to talk to you real quick about a human interest story. I had this kind of written up as one Chris Davis, the one in Oakland that's got a major league leading 10 home runs now versus the Chris Davis in Baltimore, which is, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to throw depressing on it as far as storylines are concerned, but when you're looking at a statistical thing that people are tracking each and every day, it's pretty unfortunate to see somebody in the just the clutches of a slump that's gone on as long as Chris Davis. I know he's signed to a big contract and people want to point that out immediately, but I read an article on SI this past week that really profiled Chris Davis. I think it was late last season that that article was written. Uh, I'll tweet that out. If I haven't already, I'll do it again when I put the show out. But just what he's going through personally, trying to get himself back to being the player that he has been at times in his career. And it said perhaps no player has been negatively affected by the new way of baseball in terms of the shifts and all the other things that go on, um, defensively speaking, the style of hitter that he is, the advanced scouting. Chris Davis is old for his last 53, hasn't had a hit in his last 61 plate appearances dating back to last year. He's old for the season thus far. We're a couple of weeks in. Nick, I know you played this game. I know it's a humbling game. I know that it's not as easy as people want to believe it is on the outside, but can you even put yourself in, in the headspace of where exactly a guy like Chris Davis is right now and what he needs to do to try to fight his way out of this and you know continue to put on that uniform and you know tell himself that, hey, I belong here? It's a tough situation. I, I actually played with Chris Davis in the minor leagues in 2010 uh, in the Texas Rangers organization. Good dude. Uh, I feel for him badly. I mean, he earned the contract that he got, and now he just gets ridiculed day in and day out. He probably doesn't even want to go to the baseball field because he thinks he's not going to do well. That's a tough situation to be in. Nobody knows how he feels until you're in that situation. None of us will ever be in that situation Yeah, because he's making $23 million a year and he's still owed that through 2022. He wants to live up to that contract and he feels like right now that he can't hit anything. How do you even go to the park and have a positive attitude? I don't know. The, the article you're talking about was really good. Uh, he's a human being that's going through some tough times. I just want people to realize that even though he gets paid on the 1st and the 15th, and somebody made that comment to me yesterday, I don't feel bad for him on the 1st and 15th. Well, I do because he, he's getting the money, but he doesn't feel like he's earning the money. And there's nothing worse than getting something that you don't feel like you earn. So I don't know if he's going to get it turned around or not. I hope he does. I don't know really how he's going to do that because when you're in that type of downward spiral, it's just so hard to come back out. If I were in his situation, if I if I was having a tough time at home mentally, I would try to work a buyout and, and kind of just be done because there's no way he can continue to do this for three years. And he's got to make some mechanical adjustments. He's got to change his entire swing, which I don't know if he's capable of doing. Uh, at this stage of the game in order to catch up to the type of pitching they have now and, and how the scouting reports and his swings, a big uppercut swing. 
they're not going to pitch him down in the zone. They're going to keep him off balance away and, and then ride him up with fastballs. He's got to make an adjustment there. And I don't know if he's, if he's going to be able to do that or not, but I feel for him. Uh, I can't imagine being in that situation. So just remember when you criticize a guy because he's making all this money, he's a human being as well. That SI article really, I think, kind of opened my eyes to it because I know it, it. It's nobody enjoys not being good at the thing that they were once good at. And life and baseball, certainly very humbling both. But I, I'm with you, Nick. I look at it, you know, this is a human being at the end of the day. I'm glad that he's getting paid a lot of money, and I'm sure that's great. And I'm sure everybody would love to have that opportunity. But there are just some things you can't put a price tag on. I would not say that baseball is the sole source of the dignity for Chris Davis. I think he's a much bigger and better person than that. But this is something that I think is taking an incredible mental and emotional toll on him. And I got a lot of respect for a guy that still shows up and is still trying to work and figure out a way to get back to some semblance of what he used to be. And that, I think, is was my takeaway, especially from the SI article. And again, from anybody that goes through something as long as this has gone on, I don't know. I, I can't help but pull for somebody because I think we all like a redemption story, don't we? We do. If he could get things turned around, it would be amazing. I know a lot of former players are out there rooting for him. And if he can just get back on track and feel better about himself, uh, I think that'll go a long way. But it's a tough situation. There's no doubt about it. And I feel for him every single day. Yeah, and it's just tough to watch and tough because I think you feel for him because they tried to give him a sabbatical last year, I think is what he called it. He doesn't want another one of those. He's not begging off the Orioles. Meanwhile, if they win a baseball game, the big story is still whether or not Chris Davis got a hit on that particular day and not on the positive stretch of, hey, remember when Joe DiMaggio had his uh, 56-game hitting streak? That was great. Did he get a hit tonight? That's the kind of thing that you like tracking. This is not the kind of thing that you love tracking so much. So hopefully – at some point for Chris Davis, he'll be able to figure something out and turn this thing around. It would be a great redemption story, a great feel-good story, I think, in general, especially if he can you know, get on an extended role and enjoy some success again. I think everybody would pretty much like to see that. So that's what's going on around the rest of baseball. And, of course, it was a busy and eventful week for the Braves as they wrapped up their second full week of the season. If you like the podcast, I invite you to subscribe. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher from thediamond.com as well. You can find it there every episode and any and all of the articles that I'll write throughout the season, you can find them right there at fromthediamond.com. Nick, an eventful weekend ahead for the Braves. They'll try to split a series with the Mets, and then they'll hit the road again. But we'll be back at the ballpark, and I look forward to seeing you out there soon. Absolutely. All right. For Nick Green, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond. We will catch you next week. So long, everyone.